Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, we see a parable that Christ gave in his teaching. It's very short, but very, very meaningful. He said in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Brethren, have we found hidden treasure? Have any of you found hidden treasure? Maybe not in your backyard. You know, as kids, you sometimes like to dig up holes in your backyard and Look for hidden treasure, and you might find <clears throat> you might find an old spoon or you know some artifact uh, from days gone by or something. But rarely do we find actual hidden treasure. But I submit to you that we, in this room and around the world, in God's church, have found hidden treasure, and that's why we're here. This is the day of Pentecost. This is one of the annual holy days. Where we come to honor God, we come to glorify Him, we come to learn a whole host of things on the day of Pentecost, about the early New Testament church, about the giving of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of that tremendous gift, and we learn about the calling of the first fruits. We learn about the calling of the first fruits. So let's turn over to Leviticus 23, Leviticus 23, and we get a little bit of an introduction about this day. Leviticus 23 and uh, verse 15, of course, this is really sort of jumping into the middle of the, the context here because he's been talking about the wave uh, sheaf that was the sheep that was waved during the Passover season, which represented Christ from the barley harvest. And then now, verse 15, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So that comes to the day of Pentecost. That comes to the day that we are observing today, also called the Feast of First Fruits. He says, verse 17, You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And then we see in verse 21, And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. That's why we are having a holy convocation Today, you shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. What did these two loaves represent? Again, the 
the Pentecost, the day of Pentecost came at the beginning of the wheat harvest as opposed to the barley harvest in the springtime. Now it was early summer, so it was the wheat harvest. Another event that God marked, and the Israelites were to take two loaves out of that wheat harvest and bake them with leaven and wave them before the Lord. From the the Holy Day booklet, it says this about those loaves. And this is page 23. Then on the day of Pentecost, or first fruits, they were to offer two wave loaves. It was stated that these wave loaves are the first fruits to the Lord. These first fruit loaves evidently pictured both the Old Testament and New Testament people of God. Since even the Old Testament prophets had the Holy Spirit of God. One vital lesson of the first fruits is that God is only calling out a small number of people, the first fruits, in this age. So the two loaves represent the two congregations, the Old Testament congregation of Israel and the New Testament church. The New Testament church. So they represent us. So this feast is about us. Not just us. You know, the Old Testament saints as well. But this feast puts the spotlight on us today. We are part of the group that it is focusing on today. It's shining the light on the church. And it teaches us what our role is and what we should be doing and who we are. That's pretty important when you think about it. When you come to a holy day that is focused on you and the group that you're in and what you should be doing and who you are. Exodus 23, verse 16, I'll just refer to it. Again, the Feast of Pentecost is also called the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. That's Exodus 23:16. So what do we learn? If this is about ourselves, what do we learn about ourselves on this day? If this is about us, what do we learn about our role? You know, we have a concept in our culture, in the world, of a calling. When people speak about having a calling, it might be for doing all sorts of things. It might be for doing charity work. You know, they might have a calling uh, to, to uh, be a missionary, to go overseas and to help other people in other nations. Or they might just have a feel like they have a calling to do any sort of job because they feel like it's more than a job. That it's a passion for them. It's a way they can help other people. It's something that drives them. It's something that gives them meaning and purpose in their life. They call it a calling. They consider it a calling. It's not a mundane thing to them at all. Well, brethren, we have a calling in the church of God, don't we? And that is as first fruits. Let's turn over to John chapter 6 and verse 44. John chapter 6 and verse 44. If you are baptized, then you have made the declaration that you are responding to that call. You are responding to the call of the Father. You are responding to the role of the first fruits. John chapter 6 and verse 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last 
day. The difference about our calling compared to someone who might feel like a calling of a, as a teacher or a mechanic or a plumber or anything, our calling comes from God. Our calling is not just something that we, we began to discern or sense from inside. It actually is a calling from the supreme being of the universe. See, in the world, again, a lot of people feel a passion and a desire to do something, but it's from inside. It's, it's be, they listen to their, let's say, their inner voice, and they, they begin to see what really want, drives them and what they want to make their life about. But this is not our inner voice that's <laughs> giving us our calling. It's the creator of everything. That should, in itself should tell us something about the uniqueness and the specialness about our calling. When the Father specifically singles you out, puts your name in there, fill in the blank, you out, and says, I want you. I want you. Brethren, have we not found hidden treasure? Or rather, has hidden treasure not been dropped in our lap? Because of the calling from God. What about if you're not a first generation? I know that's what the some will say. Well, you know, my parents were called. They were keeping Christmas and they were eating pork and all those things. And, and I just, you know, I just came along. And I'm just sort of on the end of the train. And God, I don't know, is it a special calling or not? Well, absolutely it's still a special calling. I'm a second generation Christian, and I understand that feeling of sometimes wondering when you're growing up, is, is this, you know, is God really calling me, or is it just my parents, and where do I fit in, and, and does he just want me, or am I just one of those, you know, when, when you're playing softball or kickball as a kid on the playground, and they're picking sides, you know, two, 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 two captains, are the, ca- are the captains, they're the best players, and everyone else line up along the fence, right? And they start going down the line, and you just don't want to be the last one picked. No. Or maybe the last two or three, and the one, one guy says, you can, just, you can take all of them, you know, we, we, don't, we don't need any of them. And uh, is that the way it is for second generation Christians? Is God kind of saying, well, you know, we need a few more players, so yeah, come on. You, know, you, can, you can stand in the outfield. Is that the way it works? Or is God calling second and third and fourth generation Christians as well with a unique and special calling just as much as first? I think you know the answer. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Peter said, on the day of Pentecost, in this sermon... To those that were pricked in their heart and were asking the apostles, what should we do when we became, become aware that we are guilty for the, the death of the Messiah? Peter said, Acts chapter 2, 38, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, 
as many as the Lord our God will call. Our children have an opportunity to respond. If you haven't read the child-rearing booklet, uh, that explains it in, in great detail and very, very helpful to read that. But what an opportunity if we can help them, if we can light a fire under them, if we can help them to see that they have hidden treasure as well. And it's right in their hands and right in their laps. And those of you who are children today, we, I know what you're thinking. I know what it was like. And some of them who are even sitting on the floor right now, I remember sitting on the floor in church, and I remember some of the things that were said from the pulpit, even while I was sitting on the floor. Those things stick in your mind. You have an opportunity. A real and genuine opportunity. Now, because we have a calling and a special calling, does this mean we're better than everybody else in the world? Of course not. I'm not going to turn to it, but 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 says, Brethren, for you see your calling that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty or noble have been called. We are the weak of the world. And why? Because someday, someday, maybe God will be able to tell one of those mighty and one of those powerful, say, look, if I could work with Rod over here and make something out of him, then I surely can work with you. That's the value of responding to our calling right now. It's God's doing. It's not ours. We didn't send in applications. None of us applied for this, right? I don't think so. And God isn't just choosing the best applicants. But if we respond to him, he can use us in incredible ways. This day shines the spotlight on our calling. But brethren, do we really appreciate it? Do we cherish it? Do we value it as hidden treasure? You know, one of the great sins of our Western nations today is ingratitude, that of squandering and wasting our blessings and taking them for granted, and really coming to the point where we think comfort and ease is our birthright. Now, we don't say it that way, do we? But take away a little bit of comfort, take away a little bit of that ease, and watch us complain. See what happens. And pretty quickly, yeah, it's pretty obvious, we think of it as our birthright. We think of it as something we deserve. Why? Because we're just used to it. Can we get to the point where we take our calling for granted? Brethren, I, I want to talk about our calling today and how precious it is like hidden treasure. If you want a title... For today it is cherish and embrace your calling. Cherish and embrace your calling. And we'll talk about this in context of three things that happen as a result of cherishing and embracing our calling. The first, the first thing that happens if we really respond with all of our hearts to our calling today is number one, we are immensely blessed in our life now. Number one, we are immensely blessed in our life now. When we're called by God and 
when we embrace our calling, not half-heartedly, but when we go after it all with everything we've got, it changes our life now. It changes every part of our life. It touches every aspect of our life. It's valued beyond words. Let's, let's go back to Exodus chapter 19, and we, we get a little bit of an introduction into the type of blessings that God is offering to us by looking at how he was offering to bless the physical nation of Israel. When he called them as a group, again, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, but he called them out to be a, a special nation, as we're going to see. Exodus chapter 19 and verse uh, verse 5. Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were about to receive the Ten Commandments. They were about to enter this special relationship with God. And notice what he said. Uh, verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. How did God feel about those people? What was he offering to them? He said, I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity to have a relationship with me, for you to be a special treasure to me. I want you to be with me. That's pretty, pretty amazing when you think about it. He chose them to be drawn to himself, not because of any great thing they had done, but rather... He was responding to promises he had given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he was ultimately going to bless the whole world. But he started with them, and he gave them an opportunity to be blessed in magnificent ways. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, because we understand, we know the story, we can fast forward, you know, uh, hundreds and even thousands of years to know that they did not live up to that covenant and that opportunity. And now God is calling a spiritual nation. But he uses the same language, and he's talking now to us. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Dropping down to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a chance we have to have a relationship with God, to be singled out, to be called out, 
to be given a chance to walk with him. Who doesn't want to be considered special? Who doesn't want to be considered that they were chosen, that they were picked out? I want you. I see something that I can do with you, and I want you on my team. And that's what God is telling us. The beauty of it is ultimately everybody will be on his team. We're just being given an opportunity to be one of the first ones to have that, that opportunity. What does it mean, and do we appreciate just what it means to be called out of the world? Mr. Strain writes his, his weekly comments by email that we get here locally, and I want to quote something he said this week. He wrote, Recently I read a quote that I found interesting, but I've managed to forget the author of the quote. Anyway, it goes something like this. Whenever I hear someone say, Life is hard, I'm always tempted to ask, Compared to what? <laughs> What's the alternative? No life? Now, sometimes, you know, life is so difficult that sleep is a relief. And we have some of our brethren who are suffering to that extent. Life can be hard. But brethren, for, for most of us who are not in that situation, for most of us, when we compare our life with a life out in the world and we get overwhelmed by our trials and difficulties, we need to stop and think, what would our life be like if we were out in the world? What would our life be like without God? What would we be doing right now if we didn't know God? If we hadn't been considered one of those special people that he's calling now, timing-wise, just ahead of others, not that we're more important, where would you be if you weren't called right now? What would you be doing? You wouldn't be keeping the day of Pentecost. What would I be doing? What would your work life be like if you weren't keeping the Sabbath? Would you be working virtually nonstop? A lot of people are these days just to make ends meet. Would you be worrying about the future, especially in our time in history today? Would you be getting involved politically perhaps in some local community group when you see things spinning out of control? Would you be struggling with some sort of addiction? You know, we don't know. Where would we be? What would we be doing? Now, again, we have problems. Even now we do. But how much worse would it be, brethren, if we weren't called? Proverbs 34, 19. Uh, Solomon said, Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And in contrast, Proverbs 13, 15 says, A good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard. There is a very hard way. And we are not on it, aren't we? We are on a better way, a better path, a much blessed path, more blessed path. Do we ever forget that? 
and just take it for granted. There's an author, Matt Walsh, some of you may be familiar with. He's a conservative writer, has a lot of common sense. He writes about uh, right and wrong and really puts things in a, I think, in an interesting way, helpful way, wording-wise. Some time ago he wrote a blog about how many, so many in our world are lost pursuing what they think is happiness, but getting further and further away from it all the time. He titled this article, If You Want to Be a Miserable Failure, Just Do What Makes You Happy. <laughs> that is a memorable headline. He said, it's not a coincidence that the do what makes you happy mantra is rarely offered as a justification for a healthy, generous, or productive decision. It's always the bum, the drunk, the couch potato, the loser who's doing what makes him happy. Stable, successful people are doing something else, something bigger. Indeed, if you ask someone why they go to work every day, why they stay faithful to their spouse, why they're attentive to their children, why they care for a relative with dementia, or why they give to charity, or why they exercise restraint, or why they keep their promises, or why they save themselves from mar for marriage, or why they engage in a hundred other good and worthwhile pursuits, the answer will never be, well, I'm just doing what makes me happy. which isn't to say that these activities always make them unhappy, just that they're reaching for a thing deeper and fuller than momentary gratification. And brethren, you know, even, even people out in the world can sort of figure some of these things out. Why? Because they look at biblical principles and these principles work no matter who you are if you apply them. But how much more for us when we're sitting here today and we have God's Spirit and we can understand this, these concepts much more deeply, how much do we appreciate what God has given to us? That we're not just seeking after happiness every second. In fact, he says something very interesting about the word happiness. He says it's relevant to note that the word happiness comes from hap, meaning chance or fortune. <clears throat> chance or fortune. You know, we, we have the word happenstance. We have the word happen. Uh, he says, by definition, happiness, the word happiness is fleeting and dependent upon environmental factors. Happiness is not bad in itself, but neither is it solid enough to serve as the foundation of our lives. We'll never get anywhere then if we only ever ask ourselves whether this or that action will make us happy. In whatever direction we go, we won't stay on that road for long because nothing will make us happy all the time. He explains that doing the right thing is what brings meaning and purpose in a life. And yet, think about it, just how many people out there in this world, are totally lost, pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the, the good old American way. How blessed we are that we know a different way. How blessed we are. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 5. Let's turn over there for a moment. Deuteronomy Chapter 5, 
Our calling, our calling is so precious, even for how we're blessed right now. Even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of worries, how much better do we have it than so many people who are suffering out there today? And it, we're not just that we should focus on ourselves. We're going to get to some other things that we focus on a little bit later. But I want to lay the groundwork, the foundation, the groundwork, that, that the life we're living, we, we, we must never forget just how blessed we are. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 20, uh, 29, uh, the Lord, the Eternal, was speaking to, to Moses and, and expressing this incredible feeling for his people and, and the anguish that they wouldn't just do what he said. He said, verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be miserable for them, right? That it might be sad that they might be upset all the time and worried and stressed out and frustrated. Is that what he said? No. That it might be well with them. How much do we appreciate that God has given us a way of life that works, that works, and the more we apply it, and the more we embrace it, and the more we cherish it, it works better. Again, doesn't take away all our trials, doesn't take away all our worries, but it just works, doesn't it? On this day of Pentecost, I think it's important that we Remember our calling on this day that focuses on and spotlights the church. Yes, we have some things to give up. Yes, we have to say no to our own personal desires sometimes. We have to curb our appetite sometimes. We have to restrain our tongue sometimes. We have to swallow our pride. We have to repent. But God has called us so our life could go well, even now. Let's be thankful for that. Number two, let's look at another effect of embracing our calling and cherishing our calling as a first fruit. Number two, when we embrace our calling, God gives us the hope of a future. God gives us the hope of a future. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and let's uh, we stopped in the middle of a phrase, but... Let's pick that up again and continue this time. He says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be well with them. And notice, with their children forever. Would you say that God's way of blessing, God's way that works, God's way that works well is sustainable? from generation to generation? The answer is absolutely yes. He said, I, I want it to work for you and for your children for the next generation. But then he says, forever. I want this system, I want this society to be sustainable year after year, generation after generation. How about our society today? How's that working for us in the world today? 
is what we have sustainable? Or are we seeing some pretty serious cracks in our world today? How many people in our country and around the world honestly believe coming to see, coming to accept the fact and believe that the United States and other Western nations could collapse, could collapse. And there are serious people talking about that. Well, how can you possibly convey to the next generation any sense of optimism when you're borrowing like there's no tomorrow? $28 trillion, isn't it? And counting. Have you ever looked at that debt clock website and seen the numbers just tick by? And you think, wow, what's left for the next generation? How are the, the, the children of this and grandchildren of this generation going to ever possibly pay it off? They won't. It's impossible. It can't happen. The weight of it is too high. We're living as if there's no tomorrow. And anxiety and depression and mental illness climbs. Our people are stressed and worried. There's a website called newswise.com reported on a Rutgers University study. And here are some findings. More Americans think that jobs, careers, and employment opportunities after the pandemic will be harder to obtain for the next generation than they were following the 2008 Great Recession, uh, according to a new Rutgers report. Re report co-author Carl Van Horn said this, as President Biden begins his presidency, Americans are experiencing dire financial and emotional trauma. They worry these negative realities will linger for many years. The survey found that 9 in 10 Americans are concerned, worried, or scared when thinking about themselves, their families, and the national economy. While 5 in 10 Americans say recovery will happen, but it will likely take years. Both Democrats and Republicans are uneasy about the economy and their families, with 9 out of 10 respondents say they are concerned about the future. A lot of people deeply troubled about what they see, and for good reason. What about you? Are you troubled? What do you worry about? And do you shift your mind to, okay, what is God doing? What's really going on beyond and behind the scenes? And what can I, what can I think about in terms of the future? That's an effect of our calling. That's an effect of our calling. Going back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, dropping down, he says, verse, uh, verse 32. Sorry, verse, verse, uh, 30. Verse 30. He told Moses, go and say to them, say to the children of Israel, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. The whole, the whole, passage in the story flow was was leading up to them entering the promised land wasn't it he was and they were anticipating a glorious future they were looking forward to 
entering the land and growing crops and raising families and having blessings. They were anticipating a future. And yet our day, that future is dwindling, isn't it? For our nation. But God was promising them a future. In the land which I am giving them to possess. Verse 32, Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. We are going to a promised land. Not a physical land, not a land of Canaan as they were, but we are looking forward to a future. And yet we find ourselves, brethren, sort of living right in the middle of a collapse of a doomed nation. I think Mr. Strain put it that way a couple of months ago. We're right in the middle of a doomed nation. And we have front row seats. And you know, do you ever do you ever sort of get the feeling like I feel a little bit too close to the heat here? Maybe I'll sit in the back somewhere. I'm not sure I want a front row seat in this. Not sure I want to see this that closely. You know, someone once said anxiety and excitement are the same physiological responses, it's just a matter of perspective. We can be anxious about our future or we can be excited about what God is doing. We can be excited about the plan that he's working out. We can be excited about our role in it. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 26. Let's turn over there. There's actually so many reassuring and encouraging promises about the future, when you start thinking about as you're living God's way and asking for encouragement and asking for direction, and God gives so much encouragement about our future, it's hard to sort of pick out which ones to choose when you're discussing it. But here's one, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 26 in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. In the fear of the Lord, when we're focused on him, when we're embracing our calling, when we give him our attention, when we're not always distracted by everything that's going on around us, the more we do that, the more we have strong confidence. And his children will have a place of refuge. How important is that as we, we look at the future? We look at what things are happening. Can you put a price tag on it? Is that a treasure found in the field that God has dropped in our lap? That we can depend on him in that way. You know, I was listening to a radio show not long ago, and um, the talk show host was talking about the different things happening in our country and, and around the world, and one caller called up and said, this is wrong and that's wrong and this is going wrong and the other thing, and the talk show host said, so what do you think is the solution? 
He was trying to be positive, trying to be optimistic. Maybe he is general, genuinely optimistic. I don't know. But the caller said, um, I don't know. I don't think there is a solution. And the host, I, you could tell he, that was not the answer he wanted. He wanted a solution. He wants to think, we can turn this around. We can change this. And the caller said, I don't think it can be solved. How many people are out there today who are that worried, that concerned about our future? You know, that's kind of a dangerous place to be when people start feeling hopeless and helpless. Because then they will accept extreme measures. And they'll accept leaders who will take extreme measures. And we know what prophecy shows about some leaders who will take charge and take the world in a very, very dangerous direction. In Europe, heading up the beast, etc. But brethren, the point is, as we are watching this happen, as we are seeing this unfold, and as we keep up on the news, we watch world events, we need to be careful. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 6, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 21 and verse 34. Luke chapter 21 and verse 34. Some of us were talking recently about, you know, watching world events. And um, without even being aware that we're starting to slip into a negative frame of mind. And there's a, there's a trap and there's a danger and there's a warning as we read here. Luke chapter 21, verse 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So verse 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And I, I wonder if sometimes we, we do really well on the watch therefore. You know, we're watching world events. We're staying up on the news, which involves being aware of the bad news. And there's a lot of bad news. And there's a lot of discouraging news. And, you know, if we're not careful, we can get caught up in that news cycle and we keep looking and we keep clicking and we keep searching and we keep look, scanning the headlines. And we need to be aware of it. But it's like we're digging through the mud. You know, it's like we're opening the, the septic tank. We know what's down there. Do we really need to open it up and sort of dig through it to be sure what's down there, you know? Or do we get filled with the smell and the waste and the filth? And what does it say here? Watch therefore and pray always. How much, how much time do we spend praying when we are watching? That we're watching, we're aware of what's going on. And then by praying about it, by spending a lot of significant time praying we are able to put the watching in perspective. And we're able to see that's what God is doing. I can see how He's working that out. I can see what prophecy He's working out 
I can understand better now why he's doing that. And I see where it's going. Watch and pray always. Do we spend hours online and minutes in prayer? That's a question. If we do, we shouldn't be surprised if we fall into negative thought patterns. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah was was relaying a message to the captives who had been taken into captivity. And God was telling them a very positive, forward-thinking message about the future. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And isn't, isn't that a powerful scripture to think about as this nation is being prepared to go into captivity as well? And we're on those front row seats. And yet, what are God's thoughts toward the entire nation, ultimately, but especially those who are responding to him? Because notice what he says here. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Well, certainly if coming back from captivity, when they would seek him and find him and because they search for him with all their heart, he'll be found. Wouldn't he be found before a people goes into captivity? And isn't that something we should be doing? Cherishing and embracing our calling. Seeking him with all of our heart. And thinking about that as we keep this day of Pentecost and think about who we are and what, what we're doing. This is how God thinks about us. These are the thoughts he have has toward us. We have so much hope, brethren. I think that that was brought out in the in the offertory. What a blessing that we have the hope of the fu- of the future. And that's part of the treasure that is in our hands because how many people have lost hope? How many people don't have a hope? How many people believe in evolution today? and console themselves, and put a happy face on it. But when they get to the end of their life, what are they really thinking? They don't know what's going to happen in the future. What are they really thinking? I better be right. Even then, what do they have to look forward to? Some sort of nothingness. It's crazy how precious it is that we understand the future and have a hope in the future. Matthew chapter 5. Notice Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Jesus was giving and talking about the things that he's looking for and the result and the hope and the future as a result. Matthew chapter 5 and verse Verse 1, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was set, seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. You know, if we're controlling our mind, if we're controlling our spirit, if we're conquering our spirit, controlling our mind as we heard yesterday from Mr. Strain, then we have a future. That's what he's saying. We have a future. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we're willing to be humbled, if we're willing to apologize, if we're willing to have our pride crushed, then we have a future. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. If we are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we have a future. I saw an interesting video from a speaker named Mel Robbins and uh, would not agree with everything she said, but she did have some interesting insights in the talk. She talked about how too many of us are waiting to be motivated to do the important things in life until we feel like it. And she said, you know, we just need to do it. Just need to do it. You're never going to feel like it. Just do it. Uh, really helpful and interesting. And um, she brought it down to something as simple as letting our cell phones dominate our life. And, you know, we hear this over and over again. But it's true, isn't it? How hard is it to take control of that cell phone? And in particular, she said, you know, the cell phone does not belong in the bedroom. She said it, it drains us of the ability to relax at the end of the day. And at a time of the day when we need to rest, when we need to be refreshed, when we need our brains to take a break at the end of the day. And yet we keep getting hit by those notifications of a message or a text or this or that. And we keep wanting it. And we keep wanting to, to see, well, maybe I got another email. Maybe I got one more email. Maybe I got another text. And it hit me. You know, for us, for the people of God, how much more, how much of our time and attention is stolen away in these prime times of the day? Mr. Hernandez was talking about that recently, about the morning and evening sacrifice, the time for prayer, the time to be close to God, the time to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And yet, how much of that time, that high leverage time, beginning of the day and the end of the day, when that is time we need to spend with God, how much of it do we allow our phones to interfere? And it's just one drip at a time, one text at a time, one message at a time. It's just one. It's just one little message, which turns into two, which turns into three. And eventually it erodes our whole cherishing and embracing and focusing on God. Brethren, how, how much do we need to grab onto those high leverage times and not let these things that, that can interfere drip by drip by drip? You know, we talk about, we hear about the dopamine hit that we get, right? When we, when we hit that button and... Something happens. It doesn't matter what it happens, but something happens. And it's a little shot to our brain. Well, how about getting a dopamine hit 
when we think about studying the Bible? How about getting a dopamine hit when we open the Scripture? How about getting a, an excitement when we feed on Christ? You know, the more we do it, the more we develop a taste for it, the more we build anticipation of it the next time. And that's what God wants, to be hungering and thirsting after him, not tech. So we have a future. We have an incredible future, and as we embrace it, as we think about it, as we fill our minds with it, especially in those high leverage times of the day, we're going to be focused on it. We're going to be excited about it. We're going to be fulfilling our role as, as first fruits. Number three, number three, as we embrace our calling, we're blessed now. We're blessed in knowing about a future that we have. And as well, number three, when we embrace our calling, we have a chance to impact the world. We have a chance to impact the world. We've often heard about this. We're not in it just for ourselves. We're not in it just for our own salvation. And yet we do need to think about how we can be blessed now. We do need to think about how we have a future, and that's important. God works with rewards. We, we operate with rewards. We operate when, when we do things. If we're rewarded, that, that helps to, to repeat that behavior. But there is a third element, and we can have an impact on the world. Notice in Matthew chapter 5, going on, verse Verse 13, Christ said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, we are a part of a cause. We are a part of something so big. And you know, this, this can really be inspiring for our young people. When, when we're young, when people are young, oftentimes they're more idealistic. Oftentimes they are more drawn to something big, drawn to a cause drawn to something that they want to be a part of to change the world, right? After all, look at how many young people today are involved in things they think are going to change the world in a positive way. But we can see that they're misguided. They're being led. They're being manipulated. And yet if, if we can help our young people to see that what they have in their lap right now is to change the world like, like no one else can, being a part of the work that we heard about in the offertory today. You know, when we look at God's church historically, many people were called in their youth. There's a reason for that. They're open to new ideas. They're excited about the truth. They want something big, and they want to be a part of it. That's a tremendous opportunity to help young people. It doesn't mean that we can't help others as well. In fact, as you get older, oftentimes, you know, as someone ages, 
then you begin to look back on your life and you begin to think, okay, what was it all for? What meaning was there? What did I accomplish? And is there something that I can be a part of that will give lasting meaning to my life? What a blessing that we have that, brethren. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Israel was given that opportunity to make a difference in that world, and they could have, and they squandered it. They lost it. But look at what the opportunity was for them. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 6. Verse 5, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. Verse 6, For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and righteous judgments, as are in all this law which I set before you this day? That was their mission. That was what God intended for them to be, a light to the world. But they failed. We understand that there is a spiritual nation of Israel that we are a part of. We are the light of the world. We are to be that city on the hill. Not to glorify ourselves, but to shine a light and to be a part of the solution and to be a part of individuals who are looking for light and and wanting to, to come out of that cesspool and wanting a solution and being called. That's what we're about, and that's why we're doing the work that we, we heard about in the offertory today. Notice in First uh, Timothy chapter 4, First Timothy chapter 4, there's so many scriptures about the work, and we won't have time to turn to all of them today, but I just want to highlight a couple here. First Timothy chapter chapter 4. Paul was writing to Timothy, and of course Timothy is a minister, a young evangelist, and Paul is giving him instruction and encouragement on how to conduct yourself and how to operate. He said, verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come give attention to reading to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. Now, brethren, I understand that we're not all in the ministry per se right now. But what are we training for? We are to be a kingdom of priests kings and priests in the future. And we have teaching roles today in different ways, in the home or in different situations that we're in. He was telling Timothy, give yourself to these teachings. Give yourself to these doctrines, to this way of life. 
Pour yourself into it. And then what happens? That your progress may be evident to all. Verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will both save yourself and those who hear you. This is powerful stuff that we have a calling as first fruits. That we can be a part of people changing their lives, responding to the message. And we also are changed in the meantime. We ourselves are blessed in the meantime with blessings now, with a future, and with this incredible sense of helping pull someone else out of the fire. That's why we're here. That's our job. Not just to join a club. You can't join the club. You can't apply for this job. We're drafted. But what an opportunity. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Of course, this was the call that in direction and the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. As he was preparing them to take this message to the whole world, as he was laying the foundation for the work of the New Testament church, the work of that second loaf. You know, I thought of another title I could have used, the, the blessings of being the second loaf. But it didn't quite have a ring to it, you know, in the same way. Who wants to be the second loaf? You know, who wants to be a loaf anyway? Uh, no. But but these were the men who were who were laying the foundation. God, Jesus was laying the foundation through them, and he told them, verse eighteen: All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will help you all the way to the end. And how encouraging is that for those of us in that second loaf who find ourselves on the front row at the end of the age. He said, I will be with you all the way to the end. That's our job. That's our responsibility to teach all nations all the way to the end and to not get discouraged or distracted or confused along the way. And by cherishing and embracing our calling, that can help us to not get discouraged or distracted or confused. Mark chapter 10, we will conclude in Mark chapter 10. If you go there. Here is the story of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus. Came running, verse 17, he knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus mentioned some of the commandments. He said, don't, don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, etc. And he said, verse 20, I, I've kept all these things from my youth. And Jesus, verse 21, looked at him and loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. 
Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In verse 23, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it, it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now here's a question for you. Why did Jesus Christ not ask that same question or give that same direction to all his disciples when they followed him? Said, you have to sell everything you have. and follow. Why didn't he not say that to everybody? Think about that. Have you ever wondered? He, he told this fellow, this is the requirement for following me. Sell everything you have. Maybe he saw something in the rest of them that they were willing to. They were willing to if called upon. And so he didn't have to ask them to. He said, those who trust in riches, those who have their eyes somewhere else, those who can't focus on and haven't figured out that this is something to be embraced and this is something to be cherished, those who are looking elsewhere, it's going to be harder for them to find their way to the kingdom of God. Verse 26, And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? If the rich, if the successful, if the great can't do it, then who can? And Jesus said, With men is it impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And then verse 28, Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And you know, the... The implication is, and I think it even says it in one another place, what about us? <laughs> what do we get? Is there anything for us? Is there any reason why we have sacrificed? Is there any reward for us, Lord? And you notice that Jesus didn't say, there's no reward. There is absolutely no benefit for you for following me, but thank you for asking. I'm glad you're here. You're welcome to stay. But no, there's no, there's no benefit. He didn't say that, did he? Verse 29. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Blessings now. Blessings now for following this way of life. All too often, we can get negative and think it's all about sacrifice. You know, brethren, let's focus on what God is doing for us now. It's so much better than the alternative who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, yes, with persecution, and in the age to come, 
eternal life. Eternal life. A future and a hope. You know, being part of the first fruits is the greatest opportunity any people have ever been given. And here we are. It's a part of our normal everyday life. Let's really cherish it. Let's really value it. Let's meditate on it. Let's not let go of it. Let's not take it for granted. Let's not let go of our crown. The treasure is right in our hands if we can recognize it. Let's not give it up for a bowl of soup, for a bowl of lentils. This day shines brightly on our role in the church today as first fruits. Let's cherish and embrace our calling as first fruits in God's eternal family.